Well, good morning. It's great to see you. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here. And again, if you're a first-time guest, if you're family from out of town visiting, we just want to welcome you students also who may be your first time. We're glad you're with us this morning. Chose to be here when you could be many other places. You chose to be with us, and we're grateful for that. Uh, I grew up in Columbus, Georgia, uh, kind of eight, eight hours away from here, down south. And, and in high school, I started attending a new church. Uh, and every Easter, the pastor, David Howell, would tell a story. It was the same story for almost every year that I was in high school about a boy named Jeremy. And I was talking to my mom a few months back about how David, Pastor David would tell this story every year. And, uh, and I kind of jokingly said, you know, if I ever was a pastor, if I ever felt like the, I was a pastor, I probably would never share the Jeremy story just because I heard it every year. Uh, and this year I'm going to go against that and I'm going to tell you the story of Jeremy. Uh, I, th- I think it's a good story. Uh, Jeremy was born with a severe disability. Uh, maybe you've heard this story. It's a true story. He was born with a severe disability, some mild intellectual impairments. Uh, and although Jeremy was 12 years old, he was still in the second grade at his Christian school. Uh, and in fact, his teacher, Miss Miller, had repeatedly tried to put Jeremy in a special education class. But, but Jeremy's parents were big on inclusion, and they wanted him to stay with his classmates. And this frustrated Miss Miller. Uh, she had 18 other young students to teach, but she prayed and she asked that God would give her patience. And spring came rolling around, and it was the usual lesson for Miss Miller to teach about Easter. And Miss Miller began to explain the story of Jesus to her class, that he died on the cross and, uh, to redeem us and the world from sin. And then he rose from the grave, grave victoriously. And then she gave each of the students an assignment. Each child was given a large plastic egg and told to take it home and then bring it back the next day with something inside that showed new life. So all the children were super enthusiastic, that is, except for Jeremy. Miss Miller Miller wasn't even certain that Jeremy understood the assignment. Well, the next morning, the children came to school, each talking about their surprises inside inside their plastic eggs. And they placed the eggs in a whisker, wicker basket on Miss Miller's desk, and after the morning lesson, it was time to open the eggs. Well, in one egg that a child had placed, a flower, a perfect sign of new life. And then Miss Miller opened the next egg, and it was a plastic butterfly. And all these things were great signs of new life. And then she opened the next egg, and it was empty, and because there was nothing in it, Miss Miller assumed it was Jeremy's egg, and, and he must not have understood the instructions. And because she didn't want to embarrass Jeremy, she quietly set the egg aside and reached for the next egg. But Jeremy spoke up. Miss Miller, aren't you going to talk about my egg? And with the simple wisdom of a child and responding to her question, yes, Jeremy, but your egg is empty. Jeremy said, yes, Miss Miller, but the tomb of Jesus was empty too. And then the recess bell rang and all the children ran outside to play and Miss Miller went to her desk and she began to cry tears. And here for the entire semester, she thought it was a waste of time trying to teach Jeremy. He was too much of a distraction that giving him so much attention was a burden, but all the while Jeremy possessed insight that far superseded his classmates and even taught Miss Miller the truth of Easter. And then three months later, Jeremy passed away. And those who attended his funeral were surprised to see 19 eggs from his teacher and the 18 classmates. 
on top of his casket, and all of them were empty. So Easter is about the empty tomb. It is about a dead man coming to life. It is about the resurrection. And Christians should be an Easter people every day, all year round, but this week is a week that we as Christians celebrate and focus particularly on the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I want us to look at the resurrection story from the Gospel of Luke this morning. And we're gonna look at three things that the resurrection addresses. So I'm going to read Luke 24. I'm going to have you to stand with me if you're able to read God's word together. This is Luke 24, verses 36 to 53. And they were talking about these things. Jesus stood among them and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate before them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Isaiah 40 tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. I'm gonna pray for us. Lord God, would you speak to us? And we celebrate this morning that that the grave could not hold you, Lord Jesus. And then this morning we have the risen Savior presiding over this service. The risen Savior by your Spirit making yourself known to our hearts and our minds in this community. And so Lord, we pray that you would make yourself known to us. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing. Lord Jesus, would you be exalted this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So we're gonna look at three things that the resurrection addresses in our lives. The first thing that the resurrection addresses is our doubts. The resurrection addresses our doubts. The disciples are sitting around talking and Jesus all of a sudden stands among them but they don't recognize Jesus. And as soon as Jesus speaks, he speaks peace to you. Peace to you. And then all of a sudden they're startled and they're frightened and they thought they had saw a spirit Jesus asked them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? They're troubled, they're doubting, why? Because they had just witnessed Jesus, this man that they had been following for three years. 
This man who they had seen heal the sick, feed the 5,000, rebuke the Pharisees with his insight from the law, this man that they had trusted and followed as their savior and their king and their Messiah, and they witnessed him being nailed to the cross and buried in a tomb. This was not their expectation. This wasn't the plan of the Messiah that they had in their minds. Their hopes had been dashed on that Good Friday. So they were troubled and they doubted. Every single person in here wrestles with trouble and with doubt. From the most devout believer to those of you who don't believe, all of us have had our hopes dashed in some form or fashion that leads us to doubt, is God who he says he is? And I wanna tell you this morning that the resurrection of Jesus Christ addresses our doubts. You know, there are really only two options about Jesus and a bodily resurrection and how you view it. There's only two options. You can either believe it's a fact or you believe it's fiction. And if you believe it's fiction, I'm I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you've decided to join us and you're asking questions, but I, I have to tell you that the historical, factual reality of the resurrection is the linchpin of an orthodox faith. Because if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then Christianity is nothing more than just a moral system. It's just another world religion. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, as Paul says, we who follow Christ are the most to be pitied. Christians should be scorned and ridiculed by society. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, I will tell you that I need to go ahead and hand over my ordination as a minister and go do something else with less heartache and much more visible high reward. So without the resurrection, our doubts no longer remain questions, but our doubts actually start to become fact. But if the resurrection is a fact, I believe that our doubts are addressed. And so I wanna give you some reasons from this text why the resurrection is a fact. The resurrection account here is not written as poetry. It's not written as a narrative to be interpreted. It is simply proclaimed in the gospel accounts as a fact. In Luke, the the gospel we're looking at this morning, he he goes out of his way to show that they're not making this story of the resurrection up. It's very clear that there are eyewitnesses to this account of the resurrection. If, If, as some suggest, that the early church made this story of the resurrection up, then there are a lot of details in this account that should have been left out. Let me give you a few. The first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection earlier on in in Luke's gospel were women. And women in first century Israel were held in such a low status that their testimony in court wasn't even valid. So if you're making up a hoax, why would you put women finding the empty tomb first? Because it happened. Jesus then eats a meal with the disciples. They give him a a broiled fish and he he eats before them. And if this was a made up story for the sake of an ulterior agenda of the church, why add Jesus eating a meal? This is not like some shiny Jesus that they're portraying, that Luke's portraying. This is a mundane account of Jesus, a rather dull account of Jesus eating a meal with his disciples. Why add it? Because it happened. Now maybe you're thinking, well, it sure was easier for first century Jews and Gentiles to believe in a resurrection. 
right? Back then, they believed in miracles. Today, in our modern view of life, resurrections are impossible. That's not the case. The resurrection was just as earth-shattering and hard to believe in the first century as it is today, thus the disciples doubting. You know, there were other movements of messiahs at the time, but there is no other case, case in which the followers of those messiahs claimed a resurrection. Resurrection was not a part of their worldview. To claim your leader was resurrected wasn't an option, unless, of course, he resurrected. Lastly, look at verse 52. They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And Luke and the book of Acts, many believe it's one book, Luke-Acts. And so after the book of Luke finishes here, you have Acts taking place and the birth of the New Testament church arriving. And then you have a history full of people, 2,000 years full of people who have been willing to die for their faith in Christ, a church that has radically cared for the poor and the marginalized, a church that has grown and grown and grown and now makes up over one-third of the world's population. There was a Newsweek article uh, a few years ago, Newsweek, most of you know, secular article, stating historical data for the resurrection, concluding that it must have happened. What other explanations, they said, for the explosive and still present expansion of the church do we have besides Jesus actually rose from the dead? Jesus appeared for 50 days after his resurrection in groups. Groups don't hallucinate. One person might hallucinate. Groups don't hallucinate. And then the Greeks had no category for a bodily resurrection. This was simply not being made up. Here's the point that I'm making, and it's the point of Christianity, is that God acted in history, not to establish some new moral system, but to actually bring salvation to the world. And these events have to be rooted in real history or you don't have Christianity. The next thing that the resurrection addresses is not just our doubts, but it addresses the present. Addresses the present. What salvation, what kind of salvation does Jesus bring in his resurrection? Look at verse 44. It says, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand scripture that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. I always think how amazing, how amazing it would have been to be present (laughs) when Jesus explains how the whole scriptures talk about him. And earlier on, Jesus appears to the two men on the road to Emmaus and explains to them how all of the scriptures point to Jesus and are fulfilled in Christ. And the text says that their hearts burned within them. How amazing it would have been to have the Lord Jesus explain how from Genesis all the way until Revelation, it talks and points to Jesus. Now, not to get too technical on you, but do you remember uh, being in English class growing up in the diagram of narrative, the diagram of a story? Do do y'all remember? Give me some response. Some of you are shaking your head. Some of you are like, no, I don't even remember. I I was asleep in English class. Uh, So let me quickly refresh the diagram of narrative, of story. Uh, It's really simple. You, you You have a beginning of the story. 
Then there's rising action, right? There's rising action, usually involving some type of conflict. And then there's the climax of the story. And then there's the falling action that then ends in resolution. So it's this kind of beginning, rising action, climax, falling resolution, or falling action, resolution. The climax is the high point of the story. It's the place where conflict is resolved. Jesus' resurrection is the climax of salvation history. It is the climax of the salvation story. N.T. Wright, a British scholar, says this. says, take Christmas away, and in biblical terms, you lose two chapters at the front of Matthew and two chapters at the front of Luke. Nothing else. You take Easter away, and you don't have a New Testament. You don't have a Christianity. Listen, the resurrection isn't just a surprise, happy ending for one person. It is instead the turning point for everything else. It is the point, as Jesus explains to his disciples, at which all of the Old Testament promises come true at last. The promises of David's unshakable kingdom, the promise of Israel's return from exile, and behind all of that, the promise to Abraham that all the nations shall be blessed through Israel. If Jesus really has been raised from the dead, then Israel's story reaches this climax in Jesus, and it is the fulfillment of what all the scriptures have spoken of, that the nations of the earth, that the whole world will bring treasures and loyalty and obedience to the king. In other words, the resurrection brings a whole new world order. Salvation is not just something we wait for and put our hope in here on earth but it is something that has already begun and is unfolding here on earth. Will Durant, the great world historian who published a massive 11-volume history of the world, said when looking at the life, death, and resurrection, concluded that the event of Christ, quote, constitutes the most fascinating feature in the history of Western man. He writes that the world got turned upside down when Jesus walked out of the tomb. Have you ever looked at the Virginia state flag? Now, I know many of us are proud North Carolinians, so we don't want to look at that state to the north of us, but have you ever looked at the Virginia state flag? Virginia's state flag has a picture of two figures, and one person is standing with their foot on the throat of the other person, and the person laying on the ground has the crown that was once on their head laying next to them. And the motto is written, Six Semper Tyrannus which means thus always to tyrants. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the point in which King Jesus steps on the throat of his opposition. And he begins to push back the powers of darkness and the tyranny of our world. And if this is true, and I'm hoping that you see that it is, then this is the lens by which we should view the whole world. Jesus' triumph over death should turn our world upside down. We simply can't say we believe it and then live our lives the way we want. It must turn our life upside down. You ever see the the movie Castaway? It's an older movie with Tom Hanks, pilot. Uh, He's carrying cargo back to the States and he gets in a plane crash over the ocean. And and the whole movie is about him being a lone survivor on this island with his ball, right? And, And 
There's a powerful scene at the end of this movie when he finally makes it back home to his wife. And she'd been living for days now as though he was dead. And he walks in to the house and all of a sudden her husband who was dead is now alive and she has to relearn how to live life again in the light of his life. Jesus was crucified but he did not remain dead. And we have to deal with how our lives should be different in the light of his life. Let me put it another way. I'm borrow again from N.T. Wright. Imagine that somebody gives you a very rare, very unique, very valuable, one of a kind, absolutely stunning to look at painting. Someone gives you this amazing painting and it's worth more money than you will make for the rest of your life. You take it into your house and you decide you're gonna put it on the wall of your living room. And you decide after a short amount of time that it's just too amazing to be on the wall of your living room. So you move it into the dining room and you hang it there, but it it won't work in your dining room. So you try the, the family room and it won't work there either. And if you have a rec room, you try it in your rec room and it surely won't work there. So then you move it to the bedroom and it won't work there either. And then you realize that you just don't have the house that can adequately contain this painting. You actually need to build a different house around the painting. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. It is the climax. And we have from the scriptures, from, from, from the scriptures and onward throughout church history is the falling action, the ultimate resolution, the salvation for the whole world, which we should build our lives around. Does your life reflect this? Does your life reflect this truth? Do you see the beauty of Easter and why we should celebrate it every day as Christians? Because we are resurrection Christians living in the light of a whole new world order. Lastly, let me say that the resurrection addresses the direction of our lives doesn't just address our doubts, doesn't just address the present, but it addresses the direction of our lives. Look at verses 48 to 49. It says, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus sends the disciples out as witnesses, as people who are reshaped by what they have seen, this risen Christ. Their whole life is now changed by the resurrection. And despite uh, a thousand Easter hymns and a million Easter sermons, the resurrection narratives in the gospel never ever say anything like this. Jesus is raised, therefore there is life after death. We just float off into heaven when we die. Easter in the scriptures has a very this worldly present age meaning. A new world order has ensued and therefore we who follow this king have a job to do. We are to be witnesses. And the first thing we see about being a witness is that we're sent out with power to stay in the city until you're clothed with power. This is Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit that would come upon the disciples two weeks later in Acts chapter two at Pentecost. Now honestly, I think that this resurrection power which is seen in the Holy Spirit is one of the most misunderstood and least taught things in the church. Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority 
All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and be my witnesses. So when we think about resurrection power, there is an authoritative power. There is an ultimate, I conquered the grave power that goes with us as God's witnesses to the world. This should give incredible security and incredible confidence as Christians to trust in this life and in the world to come. That if God is for us, who can be against us, amen? I can remember in seventh grade when two guys wanted to fight me. Uh, and my older brother came with me to this fight. Uh, and my brother's seven years older. And just having my older brother stand behind me was enough to make me feel, feel a lot of confidence in this fight. I felt very confident. And having my brother stand with me was enough for these two guys to run away. Christ is before and he's behind. He is above and he's below. He's to the left and he's to the right because the Holy Spirit is with us. Go ahead and tell you there will be troubles and there will be hardships in this life. But as the great hymn, Mighty Fortress is Our God says, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Christ is the victor. And as Frederick Buechner writes, because he's the victor, it means that the worst thing is never the last thing. The worst thing is never the last thing. Christ and his kingdom will triumph. Christ's resurrection power is not only authoritative, it's also a power that is vulnerable. And this is where I think many Christians can err. This power does not always mean power in the way that we think, extraordinary, spectacular power. It's vulnerable. It's a power displayed in weakness. It's a sort of downward mobility of living. It's the power of a widow giving her last two cents. It's the power of the early church and its explosive growth because of the way they cared for the poor and the way they were willing to suffer. It's the power of confession that we do every week in the honesty of our confession. It's the power of childlike faith. The resurrection addresses the direction of our lives by sending us out as witnesses with power. And our witness is to be expressed in tangible ways in this life that point to the world to come. So we're not just waiting for it to kind of float up to heaven. We are to be witnesses with this power now in this world that we live, pointing to the life that is to come. As God's people were clothed with power, pointing to this new world order that is breaking in. Now some people call these moments where heaven meets earth signposts. Signpost, tangible expressions of a new world breaking in and pointing to what is one day coming in full. Signposts, all of you have seen a signpost, point to an ultimate destination, right? And because the resurrection is now the lens by which all of life is viewed, all of our life can be and should be pointing in different ways to the fully restored kingdom of God. Is your living full of signposts? Another way to ask this I like to think about is does your life cause people and relationships and place to flourish? 
Do you experience the life that Christ brings and are you giving that life to people and relationships and to the place that you live? Let me just warn again that the flourishing and the giving of life does not always look like an affluent and privileged life. It doesn't mean us always having a successful business. It doesn't mean it's always a manicured lawn. It, it doesn't mean that you always will have healthy children. Jesus led the most exemplary life possible, but it was not a life that looks like many people's affluent vision of flourishing. Let me give you some tangible expressions, some things that I think are definite signposts. Love, justice, holiness, community, creativity, celebration. Just to name a few, those are no doubt signposts pointing to what we will experience one day in full. And so what I want to encourage you to do on this Easter Sunday is to reflect and think about and pray about how these things are brought into every sphere of your life. Your family, your friendships, your job, your your school, your neighborhood, your city. So in other words, ask these questions. What does love look like in your neighborhood? What does justice look like in your workplace? What does celebration look like in your family? See, contrary to many people, and even many Christians' view of Jesus' resurrection, it is not mainly about our assurance of going off to the safe and happy place in heaven. Quite the contrary, Jesus' resurrection summons us now to exciting and a dangerous and sometimes difficult task here on earth. The resurrection changes the landscape of our whole life. It addresses our doubt, our present, and the direction of our living. Our oldest son, Henry, loves to read books. And I enjoy reading books to him in the evening before he goes to bed. And we'll read books like On the Night You Were Born or Where the Wild Things Are. And there's something true for most of these children's books that I read to Henry. Is there's always a good and happy ending. And Henry often gets to the end of the book and he'll, yeah, and we'll kind of, yay, together, uh, clap, uh, and he'll, more, more, and he wants another book. And the older we get, the more our modern society rubs on, off on us and the more cynical we get. And the more we can begin saying things, well, life just isn't a happy place. It just isn't happy. And I'm here to tell you that because I believe the resurrection is a fact, that affects our present and the direction of our living, that we live with great hope and great confidence that there is a happy ending to the story of our world. Everything sad will become untrue. The Lord Jesus will make his blessings flow for as the curse is found. If you trust in Christ, when the final resolution of the salvation story is coming to a close in the, in the second coming of Christ, we will do more than just kind of clap our hands and say, yay, we'll party like we've never partied before. And we will celebrate and we will feast for the rest of eternity in a land that is flourishing without sin and pain and death and sadness, full of joy and beauty and peace and justice. This is our hope, Christian. This is the good news. This is the greatest news. Do you believe it? 
Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us to believe it. To believe that the Lord Jesus rose from the grave victoriously and that now our lives are different, that the world is different because this has been accomplished. Lord, you've given us your spirit, you've given us power, and that power is authoritative and it's also vulnerable. So Lord Jesus, empower us to be your witnesses, pointing not to us, but to you. Lord, I pray that Christ Central Church and this community would be a a church and a community that's known of being celebration and and celebratory, that, that we have fun and that we laugh, that what we did yesterday is just a little bit of what is true of us, that we have a good time together, that we're a people of peace and righteousness and justice and love and holiness, that we would see those things brought to this city of Durham because King Jesus reigns supreme in us. Would you do that, Lord Jesus? In your name we pray, amen. Well, every week we get to celebrate this meal. It's a holy meal. And because we do it every week, I want to often remind us that this meal does not ever need and we never pray that it becomes root, uh, just kind of rote and routine. We just heard the preached word, the audible preached word. The table is the visible word. It's visible, bread, you can, you can touch it. The wine, you can smell it and taste it. This is a table where we celebrate that the Lord Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, body broken, blood shed for us. And then three days later, he rose victorious. This meal is a little bit of Christmas and it's a little bit of Easter every week. He became flesh and he will come back one day and we will feast forever in his house at his table with the king. If you're here and you're not sure if you're a Christian, this is a meal of faith, this is a meal for those who identify as a follower of Christ and if that's you, we're we're so glad you're here. We don't want you to feel like you have to pretend and be something you're not at this church and and so if you don't identify as a follower of Jesus, you can participate in two ways. Uh, You can come forward, make this motion, and we'd love to say a prayer for you of blessing, or you can just remain in your pew and and feel no pressure and and kind of meditate on what's been uh, sung and prayed and preached this morning. But if you are a Christian, you trust Christ. Though you struggle, though you stumble, uh, and though you doubt, though you feel like at times you have no faith, This is a meal in which the Lord Jesus says, I will never let go of you. Though though you might let go, he never lets go. My son is yelling, dad, (laughs) dad. Honestly, that's what we should yell when we come to this table as his children. Dad, I feed us, dad, I meet us. With your love and with your grace, with your compassion and with your tenderness, And so I'm gonna pray and those who are ushering can come down uh, and uh, those who are ushering come forward and serve and then they will let you out row by row. Uh, If you have children, you're welcome to go get them and bring them down for communion uh, and we'd love to say a prayer for them but be mindful as you come down, there's red wine, white grape juice and there is gluten-free bread as well for you. And so the ushers come on down, those serving and I will pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you. Abba Father. Thank you that we can cry out Abba Father because of what Christ has done. 
His life, death, and his resurrection gives us access to your grace and to your mercy and to your love that is very tangibly expressed in this meal. So Lord, would we taste it and would we know and would we experience, no matter how far we feel like we've erred from you, Lord Jesus, no matter how far we feel like we've sinned and much we've sinned against you, Lord, we thank you that you hold on to us because our trust in Christ, not in how we perform in this life. And so we come quickly to feast and to dine with the King. It's in your name we pray, amen.